In a world of what are yous, welcome to the place where the answer is always human. My name is Natalie and you're listening to Some Kind of Brown, a podcast about mixed and multiracial life, current events, and ways to build the best life by a southern girl who's trying to figure it out for herself. So we've done it. Some Kind of Brown is a year old. I cannot believe I made it to a year and how many people I've met because of this podcast. This episode is going to be a kind of highlight reel of all the conversations I've had with other amazing people and some reviews in between. I'll have links to all the social media accounts for all the guests and timestamps for the episode clips down in the description in case you hear something interesting and want to listen to the full episode. I am so grateful for all of you that have joined me on this journey, and if you're new, this will probably be a good primer for what this podcast is about. It is a trip to hear the progression of sound quality as I got better equipment and learned more about editing. By which I mean I might have cringed a little bit during the first conversations. I used what I had, but it got so much better when I got my microphone. Whether you were here from the beginning or just found this podcast, I hope you enjoy this episode and stick around for this next new year of Some Kind of Brown. Today we have a special guest, Asian Soap. Hello! So I have a special guest who's going to help me talk about these things. Sam, would you like to introduce yourself? Hello, I'm Sam Morell. Today is a special episode I recorded with my friend Kate over at Ignorance Was Bliss. And I have a very special guest with me today. Hi everyone. Um, my name is Tristan Oganarak Morgan. Uvanga Oganarak Oganagamiranga. As you can hear, we have a guest, another guest this time. Would you like to introduce yourself? Sure. My name is Charmaine, aka Mixed Girl Maine. This week we have two guests from the podcast Several Tangents, Shelly and Talia. Oh, hi. is this where we say hi? <laughs> hi. <laughs> we're, we're very on brand, yeah. We're going to be talking about Crazy Rich Asians. So it's good. It's a good movie. And what's important is it's just your basic rom-com. The characters don't have to be Asian. It could literally take place anywhere. It could be a story that takes place with any race. And it could still be along the lines of the same story. That's all that the Asian community has wanted. People who are like them, who are not stereotypical. Mm -hmm. And that's what's been missing. And then on top of that, this has also been in conversation about how it's revamped the rom-com genre in general. With, and it has a groundbreaking cast and groundbreaking subject matter as well. So, And we, there's a sequel in development too, which is also exciting. Yes, I'm so excited about that. But I believe this is the first Hollywood movie to ever have Asian leads in a rom-com. Yes. Yes. Oh my God. Yeah. I think it's really important to see. Exactly. And representation, if you don't agree that it's important, let me just break this down for you. I went to a 10.30 p.m. Friday night showing, and there was little old Asian granny sitting behind me in the theater. And I stood up and I looked into the eyes of a sea of Asians from multiple generations who were not only crying, they were laughing, they were smiling, they were cackling at how much they love this movie. This movie was just a token of iconography for the community. I've never sat in an American movie theater and watched an American made movie where there were two or more Asians on screen and it was literally just all about them where they didn't have to suck at English where they didn't have to have an <laughs> accent where they didn't have to be stereotypical. 
We wanted regular roles. That's all we wanted. This is a universal movie and it has us as the centerfold, which is amazing. And I think Michelle Yeoh said it best. She was like, we are not a token for diversity. Mm -hmm. It's amazing because she also said the moment has seemed to come for us with contemporary voices. It's almost like every American made Asian movie was always about something that had to be Asian, but it was always in the past. It was never an updated contemporary piece. You had Memoirs of a Geisha and Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon. Yeah. And Michelle Yeoh was in both of those. Can we talk about how there's so much lack of Asian representation that in any Asian movie, it's always the same actors? This was the very first review that I ever got, and it was from someone I actually know from high school, the little sister of one of my high school friends. Her name is Rachel, and she has a podcast called Unassigned Reading, and she said, This new podcast is definitely worth a listen. Natalie explores ideas about race and identity through anecdotes about her own life, as well as pop culture and world events. She packs a lot of good and thoughtful insight into each episode. I look forward to seeing what themes slash topics she covers in the future episodes. Rachel, thank you so much. You are so sweet. I think this podcast has covered a lot in a year, and I've got a lot more coming. There is still so much backlash that a lot of half Asians get for not being Asian enough, which we talked about Henry Golding in Crazy Rich Asians. He experienced mm-hmm. that himself. Every time I go to Japan, everyone doesn't treat me like I'm Japanese. And a lot of it is because I don't look Japanese. It doesn't matter culturally if you speak the language or I actually know Japanese and Japanese sign language and I know how to cook a lot of Japanese food and I'll be walking down the street with my completely Japanese looking grandma and I just people are just like, oh, she's not Japanese or they just think I'm some like tourist or whatever. And I mean, granted, I don't live there, but I do have citizenship there and I do go back every single year. I don't want to be made to feel like I'm not Japanese because constantly people are like, oh, your Japanese is so good or you're so good with chopsticks or they're just so impressed. Oh, my goodness. (laughs) Yeah, they're so impressed that I can read hiragana or katakana or whatever. And it's to a point where it's kind of insane sometimes and I'm like, okay, it's like not a big deal. Like, let's calm down. (laughs) But growing up, I've always felt more Japanese. Like we celebrated every tradition. We had our own kimonos and our own yukatas, which is, um, yukata is a summer kimono Mm -hmm. that we wore sometimes. And uh, I, whenever people ask me what I was, because I used to get that, every mixed person gets that, what are you? Yes, all the time. I'm a Libra. I, (laughs) you know, like, I'm a girl, like, I don't know what to tell you. Whenever people ask me that, I'd be like, I'm Japanese. Like, I would default always say I'm Japanese. I, and then they would be always follow up with, well, are you mixed with something else? And then I'd be like, oh, yeah, I'm also German, Scottish, and Walsh or whatever. And people would be like, oh, okay, yeah, you look Hawaiian. You look, uh, and I'm like, all right, that's great. But I always would default and say I'm Japanese because I was raised in, I would say, a Japanese household because my dad very, was very fresh off the boat. My parents met in Japan. My mom had lived in Japan for five years or so. And so, you know, Japanese was the first language in the house, but also we just did a lot of Japanese stuff. And I think my mom was really big about celebrating the Japanese culture, especially when we moved to Rhode Island and there was no Japanese people around us. They really wanted to make that, make sure we kept that culture alive. Being Japanese and identifying that way was a big push for my parents, but then starting to come into my own and identifying myself as a mixed race Asian. So I would say a Hapa or I would, I always just say I'm Japanese, German, Scottish, and Welsh. I don't want to necessarily put a label on it, but I do like the aspect of saying Dabaru because 
it's it just sounds like you're two parts of two whole cultures rather than just being parts of little things. I think that's going to really help us with our identity, but also removing the stigma of, oh, just because you're mixed doesn't make you less than. My dad would always talk about, oh, I love that I have Eurasian babies. Oh, you know, he's biased. He's like, Eurasian babies are the best looking. Oh my goodness. And he would always say things like, I'm very envious that you can float between two cultures and be a part of those at the same time. And so he looked at it from a very different perspective. He's like, I don't, that's not a luxury that I have. And he was watching me because we went to a shrine and I was praying to the God. And it's a very particular way you have to pray. There's a lot of steps to it. And I was doing it. And then I walked away and he was like, you know, I was so jealous because you looked so Japanese. Japanese in that moment. And I think it's great that you have your moments where you're so Japanese and you can have your moments where you're so German or you're so American or whatever it is, and you can exist in both of those worlds. And so he has always celebrated it. And he's always been like, be proud of who you are. He was honestly one of the first feminist people I've ever had in my life. Very like, you can do whatever you want. You don't have to listen to what other people say. Very different from his own culture, his in the culture he grew up. I think he didn't like that people were very follow the crowd and don't stand out and be like everybody else. He he didn't want his children to be that way. He was just always big about us respecting our cultures and our roots and not being ashamed of who we are. And we can do whatever we want, despite what other people think and to be strong women and to be self-sufficient. He, he was very, he was always like that. This review is from another fellow podcaster. And for a long time, we were the only current podcasts that talked about mixed race issues or were focused on mixed race issues. Of course, I'm talking about Charmaine or Mixed Girl Maine from Militantly Mixed and a plethora of other shows with her podcast network that she's set up. She said, I'm a fellow mixed-race podcaster and I was so happy to find another active podcast about mixedness because the few that were out there were dead or temporary podcasts. Natalie discusses mixed-race identity through her own personal experiences, current news, and culture. It's a refreshing take on race from a perspective that is typically invisible. If you are of mixed race and starved for representation, you should subscribe to this podcast. And thank you, Charmaine. I'm pretty sure if I have subscribers, they're subscribed to you. And if not, what are you doing? Go find her, Militantly Mixed. She's awesome. While we're talking about identity, how do you actually identify yourself? If someone were to ask you what your ethnicity is, do you go into a full background or do you say you're mixed? I usually go into the background just because there's not much to it. I'm usually just like white and uh, Mexican on my mom's side on like official forms and everything. I'll usually try to opt for multiracial. I guess that's, if anything, what I would be most comfortable with. Although in person, I just usually kind of break it down. I understand that. I I go for multiracial as well because sometimes, I don't know if it's just because the dialogue around the term mixed, when I say I'm mixed, people go, oh, you're black and white. I'm like, ah, actually... (laughs) I mean, now that you mentioned it, that's kind of why I stick away from it, because it's not an official term for that, but it feels like that's kind of what people commonly identify it with. And I don't want to like step over anyone's toes. So I kind of never use that term. I usually just use multiracial or multiple, uh, whatever option they have on that. And that just feels a bit more comfortable or a bit more uh, real to me. So for any of you who are listening to this and are thinking that this can't possibly be real, 
I will be linking every one of these atrocious outfits on my blog, somekindofbrown.com, in the show notes, so that you too can be outraged like us, and we can all take to Twitter and quite possibly have our voices ignored because the only thing that matters is white feminism, apparently. We can take to Twitter and nothing will happen, but we'll feel better. I'm like, I'm gagged, truly. Uh, For my Japanese listeners, there is a short glass geisha girl costume, so you guys are not spared either. It's a really inclusive podcast. We can be mad together. They have something for everyone. Yes. If you want to be mad about costumes in Yandy, they've got all the bases covered. And I just really wanted to get your thoughts because we were talking about Dia de los Muertos and Halloween, and I just knew. (laughs) I knew they were going to have something. I love that this is October. There's so much material. Right? To me, that's even more slap in the face because October with Dia de los Muertos is such an important season. You have Mexican families coming together traditionally during the season. Everybody, like even distant family, it's a big deal. And you're also confronted with all of this. Exactly. It's just... Yeah. Oh, no. oh, there's a headdress. There's there's a war bonnet. There's a war bonnet on this one. There's another one. It's called Deluxe Native American Princess Costume, and it has a war bonnet on it. Please save me. <laughs> I'm going to exit out for my own uh, heart rate to go down <laughs> a little bit, but there's a whole bunch. I didn't even scratch the surface. They have multiple, at least for the Day of the Dead costumes, they have multiple variations on the theme fantastic typically i'm a fan of but not really for this one it's real fun you know the thing about it is that you know mexican people aren't going to be buying those no like you know it's going to be some white girls who are like going out and could care less and are going to think they're real cute and that's what gets me mad yes like it's not just the fact that it exists it's who it's marketed towards and who it's marketed towards are people who could care less about us that's really the heart of the problem for me Because I feel like that's what cultural appropriation comes back to, in my mind, at least in my experience, and I'm only speaking about my experience, that's what makes me mad because it's not, like, the audience is not people who are in on the joke. Right. At least for Halloween costumes, we are the joke, and it's people who are laughing amongst themselves about it. It's a very interesting experience when you're an adult and you're discovering cultural stories that everyone grew up with but you didn't know. I feel like sometimes people like us, when we're trying to discover and reconnect with our roots later in life, there's almost this not quite guilt, but I'm going to say that because I don't really know how else to express it. There's a guilt for not knowing the things that you feel like you should have. For sure. It's definitely, I know exactly what you're talking about. It's this sense of like, if I identify with this, I should know X, Y, and Z because everyone else knows this. And it's just part of what builds up to this identity. Why don't I know that? It's weird because it feels like guilt, but it's not necessarily guilt. It's a weird kind of pressure, I feel. Yeah, that's that's a better way to describe it. It's like a pressure to like know everything or just like know more than you do and it is really interesting like you said because we're learning later in life and discovering things that people were passed along from a young age and we didn't have access to and that's not you know anyone's fault but it is an interesting way to learn and it's definitely like i said just like finding out things about just like basic holidays that are really intrinsic to Mexican culture that I don't celebrate and I don't know. It's a celebration, but it's also tinged with, I don't know if regret is the right word, but just something. 
It's kind of like that, like regretting that you didn't have those experiences, you mean? Exactly. Like regretting that I wasn't someone who was able to inherit that from my family. Not blaming anyone in my family. It's just kind of, you know, that worked out my family dynamic. Utah Film Nerd says, I find Natalie's endearing and quirky voice a pleasure to listen to. This show covers the serious topic of race in this country while keeping a light tone and a relatable viewpoint. I highly recommend it. That's the first time anyone has called my voice quirky, but I'll take it and endearing helps. (laughs) Quirky and endearing. I don't know. All I know is that I sound like a 12-year-old. Thank you, all of you, for putting up with my voice. The reason he decided to take my gallbladder out, he never did an ultrasound. He kind of felt my stomach. The reason he took it out, he said, was, and I quote, I like to take gallbladders out of women your age because it makes your pregnancies easier. Oh, oh no. (laughs) Oh, I don't like it. (laughs) I, I knew you'd love that. Oh, I don't like it. Thanks. I hate it. You're welcome. (laughs) That's the only reason he agreed to the surgery. Oh, is to make your pregnancies easier. How long did it take him to get out of the hospital? I'd have beaten him (laughs) with the nearest hard object and, you know, until somebody made me stop. Oh, gross. I try to curb my violent tendencies with people who are going to have my life in their hands. Well, no, he'd have been in in the hospital himself. It wouldn't have mattered. I, I mean, and I'm not a violent person. Like, I've never deliberately harmed another human being unless it was my husband and we were dating and I was pissed off and that doesn't count. <laughs> but, you know, as long as you get a female jury, you'd have gotten off. No problem. Well, that wasn't the thought that popped into my mind. I was willing to suffer his whatever sexism as long as he took the dang thing out because I literally lived off of a muffin a day for a month. Okay, that sounds like the end of pregnancy. So, <laughs> I've oh, been there. Good. Um, Another oh reason not to have kids. But we were getting everything we thought relatively stable. I stopped passing out as much. I'm still not able to be out of bed very long, but I'm not passing out, which is a big improvement. I went in for a what was supposed to be a routine endocrinology appointment for my thyroid. And my doctor looked at me and said, how long has it been since you've had an ultrasound? And I said, oh, a few years. And he said, let's, let's just do one and, and see how your thyroid's doing. And you know that voice when doctors are concerned, but they don't want you to think they're concerned? Yeah, it's the, the voice parents use with their kids. Yeah, he, he's doing the ultrasound. And my next crane so far back, I'm one of those people who likes to watch things. Yeah, yeah. And I'm looking at it, and I see this bump. And he goes, um, what are you doing with the rest of your day? I said, nothing. Why? He said, you know, I, there's something in here I just want to check. Would you be able to come back in an hour for a biopsy? Oh, Christ. And I said, sure, that's fine. Nobody told me what a biopsy was. They are I uncomfortable and not fun. Mm-hmm. I thought biopsies were like a blood draw. You stick it in the little nodule or whatever you have that they think is cancerous and they draw it out and they pull it out and it's done. That is not what a biopsy is. I watched on the ultrasound machine and they jabbed a needle in my throat 40 to 50 times in and out. And my nodule is right over my esophagus. So it's extremely sensitive. Man, they 
put two layers of numbing cream on my throat and I was still not prepared. Yeah. He said he wasn't too worried about it. I decided not to worry about it. And about a week later, I found out that I tested positive for a type of thyroid cancer called follicular neoplasm, which is more difficult than some other thyroid cancers to actually diagnose. So they ordered some genetic marking testing as well. And that also came back suspicious for malignancy. And that's about as good as you're going to get with thyroid cancer without taking the nodule out of your body and examining it. So this is two weeks ago, and I reached out to you in a panic. And tomorrow, they're cutting my throat open. This review is from the absolutely amazing women over at NRI Women podcast. They said, came across your podcast on Twitter. We are two Indian girls who love Bollywood, too. Yeah, if you guys don't know, I am a huge fan, have been since I was really young. Anyway, loved your podcast on PC's wedding to Nick Jonas. PC is Priyanka Chopra, if you don't know. Your attention to detail was impeccable. Keep up the great work. We'll listen to more of your podcasts in due time. Well, thank you. I love you. I We're still communicate and talk to each other on Twitter. Twitter brings everybody together. And that's seen a lot in a lot of different native cultures, you know, a lot of them are very matriarchal. And I think a lot of people are recognizing that a lot of our customs and stuff like that, our cultures across the board are carried down by women. Just that focus on it, it not having that connection, like it, it can be, it can be really difficult, especially because like how you said, you didn't have that to, to ground you. Because I know that I have friends and family mm. who are of my region who are disconnected and it's because the native women have disconnected them like with my dad too uh once my parents got divorced he was kind of cut off of the family like they'll still talk to him but it's really interesting how much of an impact and how much gatekeeping they do i can understand that a little bit my parents are divorced as well yeah so you understand that it's hard to kind of be especially in the middle of that Mm -hmm. as a child while you still have both identities it's like that I wouldn't say it's like fractured or anything like that, but you kind of have to start doing your own work and navigating that sort of split identity, especially with being multiracial, multiethnic, and then also having parents who are divorced. It's hard. It's hard to juggle all of that. Oh, absolutely. I mean, that's why I started this podcast, one of the reasons at least, because I, in my mid Am I still in my mid-twenties? Is 27 mid-twenties still? I don't know. I might be in my late twenties. I'm not saying that again. <laughs> Yeah, no, you can say my twenties. In my twenties. There you go. Yeah. I'm just now kind of reconnecting with different parts of myself, exploring what that means because I just did not have the guidance. I had all of the curiosity, all of the yearning to be a part of it. But if you don't really have that connection, that person who's going to bring you in and teach you these things, it's very, very difficult to stay connected or feel connected to any of the cultures that you come from. So I've definitely had to do a lot of the work on my own to have the knowledge that I have now. And any of the knowledge I want to gain in the future. Yeah. You basically have to become your own native auntie. <laughs> like you're you're your own native auntie, so <laughs> good luck. <laughs> Especially with biracial. It's like 
it's not necessarily that you're like switching between the two but like sometimes depending on certain setting like you might be talking about your for me specifically talking about your whiteness and then talking about your nativeness and then like talking about both at the same time and it's really difficult for people of like one ethnicity or one race to grasp their head around it because you're both Right. You're not more one or the other. My Anna Marie, my great aunt Marie would tell me, and she still like tells me this, and she would say, you know, you're not half white and half native, you're full native and full white. That I kind of started carrying with me more recently because that's kind of how I describe myself to people. I'd be like, oh, I'm half native. And I've really started to like steer clear of that half thing. When people tell me, I'll be like, yeah, no, I'm half white. I am a native woman. I function as a native woman. That's who I am. It's really interesting, especially when people are like, oh, like you are ashamed of your white side. And it's like, no, I'm not ashamed of my white side. I just don't really have anything that like grounds me on my white side, except for my aunt and uncle who went to Trump's inauguration. I always shifted towards that whiteness to kind of basically coddle me growing up. I didn't, I kind of used that as like a, a crutch. And then I started, you know, realizing, especially growing up, how sometimes I was treated okay. And then my mom wasn't. And like, it was just looking outside of myself and realizing, you know, where I stood in society and coming more self-aware, realizing what was happening around me. Cause I was so like introverted and so focused on myself which did, does not help with your identity at all. I mean, you have to be somewhat introspective, but in order for you for your identity to be really be solidified, you need those outside factors. Right. You need a community. So, yeah, exactly. So when I started like really trying to find myself and find my identity, that's when I started becoming more and more self-aware and being like, well, crap, I have all these responsibilities. Like <laughs> I already have to I had to take care of myself as an adult, and now I have to take care of everyone around me. <laughs> like, <laughs> that was a while there to where I was, like, really mad that I had to do that to the point where I was, like, you know, I I barely have a, a handle on myself, and now I have all of these expectations that people put on me, but more so I put on myself. Yeah. And I, like, really struggled with that for, like, a, a, quite some time until I kind of forced myself to find strength in it instead. It wasn't until, honestly, last year when Mansfield, my cousin, actually told me that I can be all these things at once. And it's not about blood quantum. It's not about what other people try to put you in the box as. It's what you are. And you yourself get to decide how much you want to take from that. So if I want to identify fully as Choctaw, fully as Cherokee, fully as Irish, on all those things together, that's my right. Mm -hmm. And I can do that. And that actually was kind of freeing to me and it meant a lot. But there's a part of me that kind of mourned the idea of not having that one thing that I could say that I am, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. But now mostly being able to be parts of different worlds does hold certain responsibilities, but also is a beautiful thing to me too. Yeah, I think once you start realizing that it's not a bad thing, you can find a lot of strength in it. Mm -hmm. And you have to, because otherwise it's just going to break you down. You have to like, come to terms with it and you have to look at it in a different way, like through a different lens to be able to really come to terms with it and be able to utilize it for not only your identity, but also to help your community too. I think a lot of people talk about indigenous identity, about what do you do for the community? And I think once I started 
really thinking in that mindset and really building up my confidence and building up my identity through my community and being like, here's where I'm at and here's where I want to be. What can I do to get to that and know that that is going to make what my identity is. It's a lot of hard work, uh, especially for people who are reconnecting. It's hard to kind of grasp your head around the fact that it's not something yeah, it's yours and that's your identity and that's something that no one will be able to take away from you. But your indigenous identity upholding that, that takes a lot of work too. Happily Ever Aftermath podcast stopped by and said, just going through the first few bite-sized episodes and I was instantly hooked. As I'm listening to host Natalie Evans share her experiences and perspectives on being mixed race, I'm nodding, smiling, sympathizing, and enjoying all at once. This is a really well-crafted podcast exploring an important topic. It is handled with care while being real. I encourage everyone to subscribe right away. Thank you so much. I appreciate that you like what I do. I don't know if I've said this on my podcast yet, but a big barrier between my nuclear family and my extended family was before we went to go see our cousins, my parents would sit us down, specifically my dad, who is the one who was black, and he would say, no, your cousins talk how they talk, but we do not speak like them. We do not act like them. We do not dress like them. And we would have that conversation before and after we left a family gathering. I think we, when we spoke before, you've had similar experiences with that. Yeah. I mean, my experiences weren't as blunt. My parents were a little more, <laughs> my parents were a little more like discreet with it, but they made it really known to me that my family or my extended family, they acted quote unquote ghetto and that you shouldn't, yeah. act, you shouldn't act ghetto. And so that turned into when I went to family gatherings, I was kind of made fun of for acting white because I spoke mm-hmm. a certain way because my parents told me to, or I dressed a certain way, or I did certain activities that they didn't do. And I didn't listen to the music that they listened to because my mom didn't like cursing. I was restricted to what kind of TV I would watch. So when I went over to their houses, I was like, what is this TV show that you're watching? So my parents were more subtle about it, but there was definitely a separation towards how my extended family acted and how I was supposed to act. College was interesting in that I had more Black friends because I started going to different like NAACP groups and just different social justice clubs on campus to try to make friends. And I would end up connecting with like a lot of African-American Black students. And so then I had my friends telling me like, you don't really act Black. They like, you like eat like us, but you don't like watch or listen to music like us. Oh my gosh. It's so funny that you get that from both sides. Like how? Why? Why am I getting this from both sides? Can somebody just give me a break? Yes. (laughs) And so like, I don't know, like even just the other day, me and one of my white friends went to a Zumba class because we're supposed to be workout buddies this year. Hashtag get my 2019 goals done. So (laughs) we went to a Zumba class and after the Zumba class, she was like, yeah, so you're like half white because you can like dance a little bit, but you got to work on that rhythm. I was like, what? <laughs> oh my God. No, that is exactly what we talked about over on your podcast was that expectation of being able to dance. I have seen people 
who are fully black and they dance like Steve Urkel. And then you're going to look at me and tell me I'm not twerking, which I can now, but I couldn't twerk before. But <laughs> yeah, the Carlton, like, where did that come from? Was he half white too? One of my new favorite podcasting couples, KT and OT, came by and said, Color Me Impressed, which is my favorite play on my podcast name for a review. We exist in a time where platforms are created by consumers, and we have access to podcasts that are as diverse as we are. As a brown woman, this podcast is so essential, and Natalie perfectly navigates through light and heavier topics. Subscribe and listen now. Thank you so much. It's really sometimes hard to talk about those heavier topics, especially that last episode. If you guys happen to listen to it, I highly recommend you listen to it. The South is a crazy place. It's lit. Oh my God. Hello. Hello. We have reunited. Nat and Soph, dynamic duo, some kind of brown, some kind of yellow. <laughs> <laughs> That that's a good dynamic duo. <laughs> yeah. We're talking about Asian American Pacific Islander Month, which I've been telling people that I'm doing this and it a lot of people don't know that this is a thing. Ah, oh, yeah, let's get into that. You know why people don't know it's a thing? Obama was the one who declared this the official month in what, May 2014? It might have been 2015. This is recent, girl. Basically, in terms of like people talking about this and actually celebrating this month and, you know, speaking about it, it's only popped up on my radar that people are really doing it in these last couple years. And it's, you know, slowly more and more mentions on it and people trying to make it a big deal. But, you know, clearly, obviously, it's not enough. Most people don't know about it. Yeah. And I feel like that's very representative of the AAPI experience for those of you who don't know that stands for Asian American Pacific Islander. Um, so the AAPI experience, you know, is very is just people easily dismissing us and being invisible. I feel like it's quite symbolic that nobody knows that we have our own month. In that time period, a lot of the focus is put on slavery, and rightly so in the South, a lot of the focus oh, is there. Yes. But at the same time, you had mass lynchings of Chinese people. Yeah, let's talk about that. Okay, so, you know, in 1870, Ch Congress passed a law made Asian immigrants the only racial group barred from nat naturalization to U.S. citizenship, the only racial group. In 1882, the Chinese Exclusion Act suspended the immigration of Chinese laborers for 10 years. And then this was actually extended indefinitely and then not lifted until 1943. And then there was the 1917 Immigration Act that further limited Asian immigration that banned immigration from all countries in Asia. Then we have incidents like the Chinese Massacre of 1871, which was mm -hmm. a race riot on October 24th in Los Angeles, California, where a mob of 500 white people, they, I think it was like white and mestizo persons, they came into Chinatown, they attacked, they robbed and murdered Chinese residents. Between 17 and 20 were hanged. I mean, that's even like an estimation, I think. Mm -hmm. They said that there actually might be more, but the records on that were iffy. Yeah, and then all convictions in that scenario, in that situation, were overturned due to technicalities. Ain't that about a bitch? 
I think there's a lot of people who don't actually know situations like this occurred in the first place. And I think this is a good month to be like, let's, you know, I know Lunar New Year is fun and we have great food and ramen (laughs) is the shit. But, you know, let's clear away those pretty curtains and let's get down to it and talk about the real history of Asians in this country. I got another lovely review from Naomi2323. She says, I love these conversations. Through the experiences of others and the host, this pod is showing the magnitude of race relations worldwide. It puts into perspective and makes vivid how historical practices have major impacts on people's lived experiences for generations to come. This pod doesn't just scratch the surface. Much of the magic comes from the tiny details in each story that give you a fresh perspective after every episode. This is a must-listen. Thank you so much. I really, really appreciate that review. Everything is so nuanced, and I'm glad that I can contribute something to the conversation. During the post-war occupation, a lot of mixed people started springing up. You know, they're not Japanese <laughs> because they, you know, if if you're thinking about them as the fathers, the military fathers were white. So Japanese, depending on what families you come from, are usually very patriarchal. My yeah. family is a matriarchy, but um, they're very patriarchal. So if the father is white, then those children are white oh, and they don't have that. a place here. And when you think about being tainted, you know, this idea that is probably common in a lot of different cultures where mixedness comes up, they were tainted because they were, you know, non-Japanese parent. They disregard the mother in that respect. Oh, hearing that about, I've never thought about any other culture doing that because growing up and living in the South, that happens with whiteness. Mm -hmm. You're only white if you're only like literally only white yeah if you're only white because the one drop rule is still a thing that happened you have to do it and so i went through that motion and she she came and and then she wanted to see my face and this was one of the few times this has ever happened so she came around she'd been listening to me but she came around she goes oh you don't have nappy hair at all ah ouch what and i was (laughs) like no i have japanese hair and she's like Oh, I wonder why. Because in her, wonder why. Well, think about it from being a biracial white and black American perspective. A white person is going to only see the blackness, even to a white presenting. Once they find out a white presenting biracial person is black, right? The one drop thing. This is the this is the Japanese version of that. You're not Japanese, so you can't I, you can't have anything about you that would scream Japanese to right. me. So when she's coming around that corner, she's expecting to see a black girl who's just pale. And when she saw me, she's like, oh. And, you know, being a Japanese person from Japan and not knowing that that isn't the way you should, you should make that statement, you don't have nappy hair at all. Yeah. I said, no, my hair isn't like black hair. To clarify the nappy thing. Yeah. Um, and I go, but it, I go, I have Japanese hair. And she's like, kind of. Because oh. she wouldn't have been able <laughs> to give it to me, even if her and my hair was exactly the same. She wouldn't have been able to give it to me because she, her culture is telling her there's no such thing that once you dilute it, it's diluted and the Japanese-ness is gone. Now, this is interesting, right? Here, the one drop rule if you're even one drop of black, that black is so powerful, you can't be white anymore, right? Yeah. Whereas in Japanese, it's like Japanese, once tainted, can no longer be Japanese. 
To me, that always sounds so funny. Like, is your own culture so weak that if it's mixed with something, it's gone? I'm saying, like, wouldn't you want to be like, that's that Japanese in you? Are you insulting yourselves when you say that? Because you do realize if you're implying that That means like (laughs) your bloodline isn't strong enough to overpower blackness or any other thing that's in there. This review is from someone who, I don't know if this is their real name, but they're my favorite because if this is their real name, they share a name with my youngest sister, whom I love a lot. So, Ghost Lyric says, Natalie hosts a refreshing and honest show about much-needed discussions and ones I'm not finding covered well, or at all, on other shows or other media. Topics are addressed thoughtfully and honestly, and do not shy away from the real content of race relations in our culture. This show is truly a standout, and I'm really glad I found it. Keep up the amazing work. Thank you so much for your review. I try really hard to address these topics and do the best that I can, and I'm glad you're enjoying it. I mean, how long have you had this this current podcast? Not long. A like. month? Two? Really? No, two months, I think. Two months, yeah. yeah. I've been podcasting previously for roughly a year, which was – it was a completely different kind of feel from what we're doing now. Mm-hmm. But, like, this podcast is literally – it's a newborn. Yeah, it's a baby. <laughs> That's so weird. I'm usually the baby. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Well, now, now you're you the can, babysitter. You're the yes, you're the babysitter now. Ooh, Sorry, I'm the auntie. Yeah. <laughs> Ognak always said that I was going to be a native auntie, and here I am. So. <laughs> when I was younger, obviously, like a child, I didn't really have a concept or an understanding of the Confederate flag. It was I didn't really notice it. It was just there. Mm-hmm. I don't really remember any like recollection of noticing. Oh, what's that weird flag? Like, it wasn't. It wasn't on my radar. In fact, I didn't know there was anything different about my skin till kindergarten and kids pointed it out. So, oh, wow. oh, I think I've said it before on the podcast, but my first day of kindergarten, I had, it was all white class and I had kids rub my skin and ask why it was so dirty. Oh, wow. Yeah. I mean, so this is the kind of stuff we're talking about or the kind of stuff that affected me. And this is in the 90s, so things have changed a little bit since the early 90s, but not very much. That's crazy. <laughs> a lot of the times I'm very removed from the humanity part of it because I'm looking at it strictly from a whereas side. Whereas you're strictly like all I'm about all the people. About the, yeah. yeah. But like hearing about, you know, knowing the names, knowing the ages, like imagining their emotions just really makes it heartbreaking. Yeah. And that's why I wanted to tell the story. We had this article, it got some attention, and then it went away. Mm-hmm. Nobody cared. That's yeah. crazy. That's how it is everywhere with everything. Yeah, especially if it's about black or brown people. You know, you hear about all these horrible genocides, horrible disasters even, but if it involves like not white people, then it's like, oh, that's terrible. I'm going to text, what is it, 555 yeah. to Red Cross to donate, yeah. and then you're done. Yeah, <laughs> mitzvah, as we would say in Judaism, <laughs> which is a good deed. I think when we were talking about this, I think I told you I feel a large sense of responsibility to, if I'm going to choose to talk about race issues, then I'm also responsible for making sure that these stories are heard. Yeah, these stories need to be told. Yeah. yeah. And it also helps, like, even 
you know, like I said, I, I wasn't always very involved in the social justice. I used to be. But even if you are involved, hearing these things, hearing experiences from different people, it kind of opens your eyes even more, even though you think you're quote unquote woke already. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. It was very important to me that people, one, knew what it was like for me growing up and seeing that mm-hmm. as a child born in 91, knowing the impact it had on me, and then knowing the names. Yeah. Yeah. Knowing That's- Will Norman, knowing Gilbert Harris, knowing that they were 21 and 28. I think. The names make it so much more real. How can you feel like you belong when everywhere you turn, there's a Confederate flag? Whether people mean it one way or another. And I think that's just the the magic of privilege is that the people who are like, well, you're making a big deal of it. It's because they have never had to feel what you've felt. They have never had to feel threatened in their own community. And they've never had to be reminded of terrible things that were done to people who were like them because you know they they were the oppressors really like the you know you think back to those times their ancestors were part of the problem yeah well they're still the problem not because they're (laughs) well some of them are but not because they're going out and doing violence but because Mm -hmm. they're closing their ears they're they're putting shutters on their eyes they're not acknowledging the racism that's still happening. Like you said, that was less than a hundred years ago that Gilbert Harris was lynched. And everyone's so eager to leave that in the past and forget, unless it's preserving Southern history in the Confederate flag. Sunny from Book of Lies says, thank you for your strength, for your insight, and thank you for sharing the hard history you have lived. Thank you for becoming the strong woman you are and for this podcast. Listen to this podcast. It's important. I know she wrote this after listening to the last episode talking about the lurid history behind the Confederate monument in my hometown. And I've talked to her actually after this review. It's strange how little people know about the atrocities that happened in the South. Somebody's done a really good job of keeping that out of the news. Listening back through all these episodes for the clips, there were so many more things I could have included. The conversations this year have been so affirming and always leave me feeling like I'm developing more of my own identity as I try to encourage all of you to as well. Let me know what you thought about this episode or if there's anything you want to hear covered in the future. I also want to thank Kate from Ignorance Was Bliss and Sunny from Book of Lies for becoming my first two Patreon patrons. I appreciate you both so much more than I can say. Whether you choose to become a patron too, buy merch, leave a review, or rating on iTunes, or just come to hang out with me by listening or talking to me over social media, you have made this year of podcasting amazing. Thank you to Purple Planet for the use of their song, Love Life, and I will see you later with some more Shades of Brown.